Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Generous Business Owners Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of your co-hosts here. It's just me today. Uh, Alan Barnhart is still on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, if you're out there, go wave at uh, Alan. And Jeff Rutz uh, got a meeting that he's got to go to. So our special guest today is Lloyd Reeb. Lloyd, say hello to the people. Hey, Jeff. Good to be here with you and your tribe. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Lloyd is a longtime friend. He's a meaningful guy in my life. I'll explain that uh, as we go along. But he was a uh, successful real estate developer in senior housing kind of in his first half, if you will, and you'll, you'll know what I mean later uh, when I say first half. You know, he, he helped me through, uh, he got very involved with Halftime and was a mentee of Bob Buford. He started that organization and really for the last 20 plus years, uh, Lloyd's been helping other people have a significant impact in the second half of their lives. He's written several books and co-authored some others. Success to Significance is one, subtitle, When the Pursuit of Success Isn't Enough. Uh, another book is The Second Half, Real Stories, Real Adventures, Real Significance, and also Halftime for Couples, which he wrote with his wife, Linda, and I'm sure you'll hear more about Linda uh, because he's a big Linda fan, <laughs> as we all are. I've been married and so, 40 years now, Jeff. Believe 40? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I don't know how you can be 47 and be married for 40 years, but that's uh, <laughs> that, that's amazing. And then Linda you still live near 12. Charlotte, right? We do. We live on Lake Norman, just north of Charlotte. So three kids, three grandkids. We just saw one of them uh, walk in before we started recording. Cute as a button. So congratulations on all of that. But I think, Lloyd, let's just start with like where you grew up. What was that like? Yeah, you know, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia and my grandparents came from Alsace in France in late 1800s. My grandfather worked in a glass factory, worked six days a week never owned a car, never took a family vacation. My dad paid his way to college and and then uh, became a top executive at a national valuation consulting firm. And so I grew up and in a family where, you know, rising out of that kind of worker poverty in a certain sense, although they didn't, I didn't look at them as poor. I, I looked at them as rich in many ways of the most important areas of life. But rising out of that through education and through hard work was just the norm of the conversation around the table. And dad, you know, worked in New York. We lived in Philadelphia. So he took the train in in the morning and took the train home. And um, but, you know, he'd sit down at dinner with us four boys and read the read the Bible each day and explain it to us and explain business to us. And so that was the environment I grew up in. And, and I remember one day we were we went to the Jersey Shore for uh, for summer vacation and coming back you know the the four boys are in the back of the station wagon or whatever with windows down because there's no air conditioning 1960 uh, you know maybe 1970 71 and dad said to mom you know our kids are never going to be able to afford some place down at the beach here because the property values are just going through the roof and for whatever reason, that just stuck with me. And I remember thinking all night, like it kind of ruined me thinking, well, why would you wait for prices to go up? 
And why not buy something now? And so I got all wrapped around an axle. Next day, I went to dad and said, hey, dad, I heard you talk to mom about, you know, values, costs going up and uh, inflation. And I thought, well, why don't we buy a place down at the beach? Would, would you be willing to go down with me? I'd like to use my savings and maybe you'd lend me some money. <laughs> I was rambling. How old are you at this point? I was 14. I love it. And uh, so dad finally, he turned to me and said, like, Lloyd, would you just be normal? <laughs> you know, go play football. But you know what's cool, Jeff, is he could see that there was something in me that was entrepreneurial. Yeah, exactly. And so he went, he took me down there. We, I bought five acres. He lent me the money, charged me interest. from. Oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. So that was the first start of not only entrepreneurship, but, you know, understanding the responsibilities that come with business. And so I went off to McGill University in Montreal and met Linda in Canada. She's Canadian. And started with TD Bank. And, and I realized soon as I started in with a big company like you, like you were with that, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at the core. I need to own and operate something and, and create stuff. And so, so that, that's what, you know, when I started there in 1982, the next year I bought 18 acres and we did a subdivision and um, started developing retirement housing in 1987. And so it's 35 years later, and we still own the business, but I've been doing other things and it's created a lot of freedom for us over the last 28 years. So was that first job at PD Bank, was that real estate related or was that just, you know, kind of banking 101? Yeah, it was a marketing trainee. And, yeah. You know, salaries were really big back then. Like, 30 grand or something. <laughs> oh, that was big time. Yeah. too. That was pretty strong, actually. Uh, and so you're buying, did you still have the TD job when you were buying real estate? Yeah. You know what I decided was that I was going to spend 70% of my work working time really doing a great job for the bank, but preserve 30% of it to create wealth in my own, on my own. And that forced just setting that one boundary in life, the 30, 70. It forced me to get beyond, really get beyond setting income goals and to set wealth goals. And so I've really never had an income goal, but I did have a wealth goal and I, I wanted to be financially independent in my early 30s. And so that forced me to really think about where are you going to gain those kind of returns? So 18 acres, it enabled me to do a small enough project and create, you know, 300 grand in, in after-tax profits that Literally, Jeff, I didn't spend a penny of it. I mean, I was driving the old, the worst beater car you can imagine. I remember pulling into the bank underground parking and feeling like it was a total embarrassment. If any of the executives saw me, it would ruin my, my potential at the bank. It was such an embarrassment because I was saving all the money to put into these investments, right? Yeah. Well, it also would hurt your ability to ask for a raise. So maybe it was smart. I think it was probably a smarter <laughs> move than you realized. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so you're doing that. Now, it sounds like the first deal went pretty well. How many of these deals did you have to do until you said, you know what, I'm going to do a different day job? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, October 13th, 1987 was the day I sat down and finished five-year strategy document. And interestingly, Jeff, it's typed on a typewriter, you know? Yeah. So this was pre, you know. Computer processor. Computer. Yeah. Exactly, right. Yeah. But you remember October the 13th, yeah, uh, yeah, in the business I'm in, I remember October of 87 very well. It was Black Friday or Black Monday, depending mm -hmm. on how you look at it. And Monday. it was a strategy 
you know, and I pull it out every once in a while to remind myself that really your calling comes from God and it comes in little slices into your life. And as I read back through it, it was a five-year plan with a Gantt chart and all that to build one retirement home after another with the hopes that by 1992, I'd be able to dedicate 30% of my time to whatever God called me to do. So it was kind of a reverse of the 30-70. It was I would spend 70% of my time then building wealth and 30% of my time giving back. Now, I had no idea what that would be. So we started with one building in 1987 that was about 90 residents live in that building. We still own it today. Wow. Um, and we built one of those pretty much every year for the next five years. And, and then by 1991, 92, I could see that we were going to have financial freedom if we just live simply. I came home and said to Linda, hey, honey, I've been running the numbers. And, you know, if we live simply, we can live on what we have the rest of our life and do whatever God has for us. And I was all excited. And I think you heard her tell this, but she said, how simple is simple. <laughs> I love that. We get we get all excited about our little financial finish line and like, uh, wait, I should probably ask my partner. Yeah. And, and she said, line is. you know, after how simple is simple, she said, well, our kids ever get to Disney World. Wow. So I thought, unbelievable. Like, you know, I got this big dream and, and you're not as excited as exactly, I am. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, that was uh, that was 20, whatever, 30 years ago, 1992. So that's, you know, and and we're now 28 years into a 50 year experiment to really live on what God gave us and trust him. And, you know, I'll, I'll end this little chapter in our journey by saying that when we were starting the Halftime Institute in in China, I flew as we built this organization to help successful people pursue significance, find, find out how to build more joy, meaning, and impact into your life. I would go to some far off land with the book and the message, and I would take one of our kids. Hmm. And so I flew with Jenny when she was 14 or 15 to Beijing. We flew to Chicago. We flew right up over the North Pole. I remember looking down and saying to her, look, we're over Siberia, honey. You see those small towns? Those people have never been outside of that part of the world. And we show up in Beijing and we're at the top of a bank building with six or eight other entrepreneurs. All had been studying the book Halftime and wanted to try to figure out a process to take it deep into their lives. And so on my left was the CEO of Cummings Engine. And on my right was Jenny Lee at 15 years old, eating what she called slippery food. You know, if you've been to Asia, you know that. They put a round thing in the middle of the table. It goes around like a lazy Susan. Yeah. And there's all this stuff like octopus. And she's like, dad, everything's slippery. <laughs> <I like that. laughs> and beside her was David Wong, who was the CEO of Boeing Asia. Wow. And so I'm talking to the guy on my left who's running Cummings Engines in China. And I really can't pay attention to him because all I hear is David Wong saying to Jenny Lee, honey, God's going to use you to change the world. He's using me. I'm a little boy born in a village you'll never know. And he put me at the helm of Boeing in Asia on purpose. And I, I called Linda on Skype or something way back then. You know, that was 50, Jenny's 31 now. 
And I said to Linda, we were worried that our kids might not get to Disney World. Mm. And she sat beside the CEO of Boeing Asia and had him look her in the eyes and tell her, God's going to use you to change the world. Today, Jenny Lee runs uh, talent acquisition for water missions. They bring clean water and the living water side by side to millions of people all over the world. Every day she has conversations recruiting people into the cause to bring the clean yeah. water and living water side by side. And who knows, but maybe that was pivotal in her journey, right? And so it's funny when you, when you say to yourself, I'm no longer going to trade the valuable things in my life for pri uh, the priceless things for valuable things. And, and you start to reorient. You never know what God's going to do with your time and talent. I love that. And maybe it'll tease out because you just started doing it. But I've had this question circulating in my brain because I think, remember, we've got our listeners are really, you know, business owners who are aspiring to be generous or want to be more generous or smarter about it or just have some inspiration for the road or some encouragement. And I'm just sit, sitting there thinking they're on the treadmill, kind of still stuck maybe where I am, which is how did you get Linda on board for some kind of finish line? So, I mean, stories like the one you just talked about with Jenny Lee are helpful, but of course, you know, I've got my little financial planner brain on too about getting unity around with the spouse about this thing. It's not easy to do. And I think right. a lot of us, especially as men, try to kind of run ahead and get all excited and then drag our wives along. So that's not a small thing to get unity around that. Can you maybe unpack that just a little bit? Yeah. So part of it was kind of understanding and allaying her fears. That was the mm -hmm. first part is to slow down and say, well, Okay, so tell me what, what's going through your mind and heart. And, and she had fears around security. And so it was my job to build a plan B. If this doesn't work, what exactly will I do? Now, as a real estate developer, that, that was pretty straightforward because, you know, your investment assets are highly leveraged to start with. You might have 25% equity, 75% right. debt, and very little cash flow. So, you know, I had to say to her, honey, okay, if, if we don't achieve this level of cash flow from our buildings and our investments, then I will go back and do another deal. Now, you know, that's, if you're an entrepreneur that, you know, that doesn't scare you, but if you've been in a corporate job and you're, you're trying to figure out how, you know, more meaning and purpose find, finds its way into your life, it can be a little bit more binary than that. If you leave a big role in corporate America and you sort of jettison a huge, you know, cash flow stream, it's not as easy to get back into uh, an income stream. So I recognize that, and you know, the best way is to do a, low, a series of low cost probes. Really, what you want to try to do if you're in a corporate role that is pretty intense is to be creative at, at carving out a little bit of time to test out some things that you really are passionate about, where your skills make a unique contribution. Set it over in the corner of your desk, just a little tiny piece. It's maybe 5% of your time. Look, you got 168 hours a week. Let's take 50 off for sleep and let's take 50 off for work. You got 68 hours. 
you can't spend 68 hours on your family. You'll drive your teenagers crazy. <laughs> they don't want it. <laughs> they don't want 68 hours. It's hard to get 15 minutes with correct, your 14 year old son. Correct. Right. And and once they're driving, it's even harder to get on yeah. your calendar. And then once they're on to college, you go visit them, you know, yeah. and when they're married and they got kids. And so, you know, look at your time as a portfolio management mm-hmm. asset allocation mm-hmm. and really figure out where's your time going. Carve out a little bit of time to do a low cost probe to test out something. Now, what will generally happen is if you test something out and that doesn't work and this doesn't work and this works. Next thing you know, you'll find something you can't not do. You know, there was a French poet that wrote that when you discover your destiny, if you don't follow it, it follows you like an accusing shadow. Oh, I like that. And so you want to find something that's on the corner of your desk. It's taking five or 10% of your time, some of the 68 hours that you can do after your big career and let it creep up on you. Just let it discover you know, displace some of your stuff and test it out until you've really found your niche and your contribution. And then you'll know when the time is right to make a shift. And very often I find guys don't jettison their corporate or their business platform. They need that to be generous. They need a business platform. So that's why we've kept our business and we're 35 years, you know, into this business. And I have the same partner. We've never had a mean word between us. We're completely aligned on why we're creating wealth. And, and really, frankly, he spends most of his time giving his money away now because our business is pretty easy to run. And I have the privilege of doing building the halftime movement around the world. So, you know, the first piece is to understand your spouse's fears and build a strategy. Take the responsibility to build a strategy to allay her fears. Then the second thing was to come to grips with what does money mean to us? And we, we asked the question in a single word or two, what does money mean to Linda? Now, it could mean power, control, security, lifestyle. For some people, believe it or not, it means sex, better sex. It could mean ego, identity. For us, we landed on freedom. In fact, that's why we built the kind of independent care facilities, because they're not that sexy. They, they don't go spiking way up or spiking way down. All of our residents are pension income driven. Nothing changes in 07, 08. Nothing changes today. When stable. They, it's, it's a stable, stable segment. I didn't think yeah. about that. Yeah. It's very low management. We did one congregate care facility or you know, assisted living. It was a pain in the you know what. And um, there's too many employees, too much maintenance, too much management of meds and all the rest of that. And um, independent care gives us freedom. So I pay my partner 5% of gross revenue to manage it. So, So you can see that getting clear in what does money mean to you helps you build a strategy. You can't build a strategy for freedom if you don't know the answer to what money means to you. And then the next thing we asked ourselves is who owns what we have? And so, you know, that sounds sort of Sunday schoolish on the surface, but, but as you know, Jeff, it comes down to really hard soul searching. Do I own the assets or am I a steward of? Yeah. So we decided to ask ourselves some other questions. The next question was, is there any limit to what we'll spend on ourselves? 
Now, what I didn't realize when I first asked that question was, it's a yes or no question. Yeah. It's binary. It's completely binary. If there's no limit to what you or I will spend on ourselves, then you know what? You're just, you might as well just double down on your business and investments and go all in because you can never outrun your spending, right? I mean, you, well, you, you start you, playing that comparison game, don't you think? I if, think if, exactly if I don't right. check it, I find myself just automatically defaulting into that. And I don't, you yeah. know, that's kind of sounds ugly to say, but I think that's true. I just, uh, why do I need more? For what purpose? I can only wear one pair of shoes, drive one car. I don't live in one, you know? Yeah. Now, the challenge for all of us, including all of our listeners, is to say, well, that's easy for you to say, Lloyd or Jeff, because exactly. you have this or you have that. But back then, you know, we were trying to figure out how to make this work. We were 32 and we were trying to figure out how to make this work for 50 years. For goodness wow. sake. So we set a limit on our spending. Now, we've stuck with that, Jeff, ever since with inflation. Yep. And, you know, it's what we've seen you know, Catherine Barnhart and her family do over many years as well. And, and I can tell you that that has been a blessing in our family. Here's one of the reasons why. It doesn't really matter so much what level you set as a limit on your spending. That's kind of, I don't think God's worried. I don't think he needs our resources, whether you've got this number of square feet or that. I mean, think about that. He doesn't, or what brand of car. I mean, why would he, that's not the big deal. What was helpful was when you set a limit on your spending, there will come a time when you have to look your family in the eyes and say, we can't afford that. Now, for any, you know, red-blooded entrepreneur or, or hard-charging executive, your whole life you have never wanted to say, we can't afford that. You've been building this persona so that you know, hey, I can buy whatever I feel like. And and so to be able to say to our kids, they came in one time off, we live on Lake Norman here, and they said, Dad, we can't keep up with the other kids on our jet ski. Our, our jet ski only goes 46 miles an hour, and the other jet skis now <laughs> go 63 or something. And right. I, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. I mean, that's like child abuse. Your jet ski only goes 46 miles an hour. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute. How are we going to live as a family? And so... So on this topic of setting a limit on our spending, I decided that the if there was going to be sacrifice, it was going to start with me. So, so the limits really started to affect me first before uh, the rest of the family. And then the next question we asked was, what is in our kids' best interest to inherit if we died tomorrow? You know, if you happen to be blessed with, with some affluence, you really have to ask yourself, if we died tomorrow, would this harm our kid? And many times when you sit down with your estate planner, they ask you, what do you want to leave to your kids? And the assumption is you're 86 or something, right, Jeff? Yeah. And the kid is 56. Right. And it really is totally different then. The question is, what, what happens if Linda and I get taken out tomorrow and the kid's now our kids are in their 30s, 36 down to 30, and they're all married happily, and they have good jobs, and it's different. But at the time we did this early thinking, the kids were teenagers and maybe in college, and it would have made a huge difference. So, But beyond that question, then we asked, how will we give the rest away as a family? And that's when we started 
we created that uh, donor advised fund at National Christian Foundation, and we we built a family giving strategy, and we got the kids involved in the giving every year, and and we've been on that journey now for the last ten or twelve years together to try to build a family. In fact, you know what's interesting, Jeff? We were just in Northern Michigan as a whole fam, and I always send them something to look at, read, or read to talk about before. Uh, during our time together. And I sent them new, uh, National Christian Foundation's uh, video of the Barnhart family. You undoubtedly watched that and shared it with me. You know? And then we sat around after dinner one night when the grandbabies were all sleeping, and we just talked about it. You know? What struck you? And, and what did you see between them? And how did you learn from that? And it was such a rich conversation because you know, on the one hand, they're like, wow, dad, that seems really a little extreme and austere. And at the other hand, I can see that it, like, like he said, you know, they got all the good stuff, but then Catherine said, well, I'm not so sure. And my daughter-in-law, she said, you know, that just strikes me as real. Like, yeah, you did. It did cost you and it has cost us in our life. Right. There was a sacrifice. I love that line in the video where Alan's wife says that like, well, we missed out on some of the good stuff, you know, yeah. and yeah, I, I just love the honesty of that. And, and I think you've identified it right where, I mean, Alan, he's a simple guy. He'll tell you, like we were just talking before we recorded. I mean, I think he's got 50 offices around the nation. And he told me sometimes he tent camps when he goes to visit them. I mean, that's what he likes to do. Like austere is, I don't think it's hard for him. Right. But I think one of the things I'm getting out of this discussion is the importance of you know, it's, it's the same thing with my wife and I. We're not always on exactly the same page default. You have to talk about it and and yeah. and uh, and kind of find that place of unity that's different, even yeah. for Alan, you know, for you, yeah. for me. Yeah. And then I guess the third leg of that journey, you know, if the first piece is really uh, to to listen deeply and understand your fears yeah, and the strategy. Secondly, to you know, start in on this journey with some fundamental questions like who owns what we have? What does money mean to us? What's in our kids' best interest? Those questions. Then the third was the joy of the generous life. Mm -hmm. That is truly the transformational thing in all of our hearts. So is to really lean into and celebrate the joy of it. And so Bob Buford, my mentor who wrote the book Halftime, he said to me one day, he said, Lloyd, you're living on really rich fare. And I sort of thought, what? I looked down at my stomach, like I'm 152 pounds. (laughs) Am I eating too much? And I said, well, tell me what you mean. And he said, well, I've watched you now since, you know, we've been into this halftime institute journey together for 10 or 15 years. And you get so many notes and cards from people and voicemails from people saying, thank you for your contribution in my life. And you do a little internal, thank you, Jesus. And then you throw them out. And he said, that's not wise. Your journey won't always be this way. You need to capture what you see God doing in other people's lives through you. And it's not about looking at Lloyd go, it's looking at God go. And he said, look at Joshua 4, In Joshua 4, you find that God said to the children of Israel, take these rocks out of the middle of the river and on your shoulder, and then pile them up over here on the side of the banks of the shore. 
And, and you think, well, what on earth does that do? And, and so they asked, why are we doing this? I mean, taking rocks on your shoulder and going all the way across the river, that's not easy. So he said, so that you can point to them and say to the coming generations, this is irrefutable evidence of God working in our lives. He opened up a pathway for us through this river. And so he said to me, I want you to capture an artifact every day of where you see God working through you in someone else's life. And so I said, well, how on earth would I do that? And he said, well, I'll tell you how I do it. And you might do the same thing. He said, I have something I call a book of days. I get a blank spiral bound book every year at the beginning of the year and with 300 and more pages in it. And I look for and listen for some evidence every day of where I was able to be a blessing in someone else's life because my fruit grows on other people's trees, he said. And I stick them in my book of days. And so you could do the same thing. And I remember flying home from Dallas that Friday thinking, well, if I ever did that, there'd be nothing in the book. I mean, it would just be pretty blank, I think, at the end of the year. So Tuesday morning, knock at the door. It's FedEx. They give me a parcel. I open it up. It's got a black spiral bound binder, a glue stick and scissors. That was all. No note. It yeah. was just Bob saying to me, I'm not suggesting you do it. I'm, t- I'm telling <laughs> exactly. you. So now over there, I've got 12 uh-huh. of those books. Uh-huh. And they're filled with artifacts. And so I asked the kids to take a few minutes each Christmas Eve and read them. And I remind them, this is not a book of look at Lloyd go. This is a book of look at God go. And this is what he does with the generous life. And it compounds. And so, you, you know, the best way to build alignment in your family is to, is to share together the stories, the joy of what God's doing through your generous use of your time, your talent, your influence, and your, your treasure. Will you write in those books family stories sometimes? Yeah, I capture anywhere I see God yeah. at work. So, if there's something that happens in our family where, you know, it's truly evidence of God working through me in someone's life, then I either, if it's a voicemail, I'll have that, I'll try to type that up. If it's just a experience, I'll capture a picture of it. Um, you know, someone, you know, I'll give you an example. My, my son-in-law is, is with Campus Crusade and runs a ministry there that disciples people through like Jesus.net. And he sent me a note saying, you know, thanks for your encouragement. We had 36 people come to know the Lord. And uh, I just print it off and stick it in the book. Right. You know what I love about that? I, I often talk about scorecard, you know, 15 years ago, about the time that you were kind of helping me through uh, my own sort of halftime experience. And we had a group around me that we all helped each other kind of write our personal mission statement and calling, if you will which I, I was telling you before we started recording, I still use today, used it at lunch today. And people almost always really lean in and ask me to repeat it. So mine is to help high capacity men uncover their God-given calling and give them oxygen to live it out. So that's what mine is. So even this podcast, that's what I do for a living in wealth management. That's what I do in my volunteer time. That's what I'm doing. Hopefully you and I are doing today. 
it's a similar calling, I would say. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. That and Jeff, have, but go through that one more time slowly. So it's because- to help high capacity men uncover their God given calling and give them oxygen to live it out. Yeah. So, so, so that you can break that down right into little yes, pieces. Yes. And you can ask yourself, okay, so you, let's say you get invited to go speak somewhere. Your first question could be, are these high capacity men? Exactly. I've been to the prisons. I'm terrible at it. I've been to the homeless shelter. Terrible at it. With friends who are amazing at it, by the way. But those are my low cost probes. Utter failure. But I get around high capacity people and I don't, for whatever reason, those are the people that I can minister to. It's just the strangest thing. But what I love is 15 years ago, I needed coaching to change my scorecard. My scorecard literally was I'd walk in and see where I ranked at the big firms in revenue and assets. Okay. That was my scorecard. I was an old tennis player and I had some friends encourage me to start a new scorecard, which is a notebook, just like you talked about. Hmm. And I would scribble in something meaningful that happened. Hmm. And I start, I stopped looking at that literally scorecard button on my computer, which is all numbers in earthly scorecard. And I had to switch the behavior to that. But I stopped doing it because I was like, it changed the behavior after a couple of months and, and do that. But I'm actually, I'm going to pick up that tip from you and start keeping that notebook again, because I miss that. We do have those stories and we tell them, but if they don't get captured somewhere, you'll lose them. Yeah, absolutely. That's a idea. Yeah. And Bob went on to say to me, there, you won't always be living on rich fare. And if you want to finish well, mm. you need to surround yourself with sources of encouragement. So. You need to keep track of what God chooses to do through you. You need to have a personal board around you that are going to really encourage you and challenge you and look over your roadmap every year and give you feedback. And, and you need to take time alone every, every so often, a silent solo retreat. So, you know, for the last 20 years, I've had a personal board of three people that meet with me regularly. They look at my personal roadmap each year. They give me written feedback. I have it right in front of me, actually. I carry it with me every day. And then I take three separate silent days alone. I call them dog days, you know, like the dog days of summer, a a day alone with God. Uh, D-A-W-G, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And it's interesting. I keep I keep a note, uh, page of notes from each of those. So I have a file over here, Jeff, with literally 60, 65 full pages of notes of what I heard from God on separate silent days Mm. to try to help recalibrating my thinking and help me stay versatile and adaptable as I age. And, you know, I'm 60 now. And one of the big things I've noticed in people who are finishing well in their 80s is they become more adaptable. They don't become grumpy old men. They don't become stuck in their ways. You know, against the trend, they become more adaptable. Wow. And I want to be more adaptable as I, uh, I get older. What else is on that roadmap? Well, my roadmap right now, it's got, I'll just pull it out here. It's got to cross the top and, and you know, I'll be glad to, send this to you. And then I don't know if people, if you can share it with me. I can put it in the show notes if you're willing to share it. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be good. So at the cross the top is my personal mission statement like yours. And then my personal long-term metrics, what would a win look like in my life? 
you know, you'd never build a strategy for a business that didn't have metrics. Yeah. And so many leaders try to build a strategy for life with no metrics and they become tactics in search of a strategy. That's good. So then is my wife's dream is to build a thriving family, mentor young moms, building strong marriages and Christian families. And then our family vision. So those are the things across the top. Now, those don't change, right, Jeff? Yeah. They don't change much. But the five action areas, by the way, Peter Drucker was a big mentor to the halftime movement. That's and right. he said that if you have more than five goals, you have none. You can't remember them too much. Yeah. You, and something's going to get dissipated. Yeah. So you might as well just decide up front what your priorities are. So the five big action areas for me this year are family, Linda, serving with friends, deep, joyful relationships, and social entrepreneurship book and mentoring initiatives. So that's the new entrepreneurial thing I'm doing. It's called ardentmentoring.org, matching high-capacity, half-time men and women, young social entrepreneurs that are going to change the country. So now if you think about that, family is first. Now, first of all, family, Linda, serving with friends, joy, joyful relationships, and my entrepreneurial uh, social enterprise mentoring. So there's no money on there. No, right. Money's not on there. Now, it's not that money doesn't matter. It's that I have a system like brushing my teeth and flossing is not on there either. I know how to do it. Yeah, and, it's already it's already built. Exactly. There's not a goal related to that. That's no. Yeah, you're going to breathe air. You don't have to put breathe air on there. That's right. Exactly. Right. So actually, health is not on there. It's not that well, health isn't priceless. But I've got a system, you know, I, yeah. I track it. I, I track my sleep. I know my weight. I do the cardio. I do the strength training. I, I've had a cardio CTA scan. But if somebody I, needs a plan and they don't have it, they might put get a plan exactly on there. Exactly, right. right. Okay. And they might, they might have health as number one because they know they're jeopardizing something so priceless for stuff that's just valuable. And then their spouse may be next and their faith, their relationship with God might be next. But, you know, so in different seasons of life, different things, and this is what the Halftime Institute helps people with, right? It's the same coaching that you and I did together where you were trying to figure out what are the priorities um, in your journey. And so these things change year over year. The top ones don't change. The bottom ones change every year. What's good, though, is to have something like this, which I'll send you, you can post, that you can share. You imagine I send this to my adult kids, all six of them. Yeah. And I say to them, I really need your advice. Well, when you when you say to a 35-year-old son, hey, Carter, I really need your advice, his heart explodes. I mean, yeah, he loves it. Yeah. And he's been, I've been doing that since he was maybe 18. I've like like in family, right? Carter would fall under family. Like, Carter, I got family on here. What yeah. should I put as a goal? What what can I do to Enhance, right. you know, my family relationships. So something like that is that an example. What, 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 what yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, I you give ask? him my whole plan, and I say, "Give me your best ideas." So I'll give you an example. I got on attached to this now as a note I got back from my daughter-in-law, Shannon. Yeah. And I said to her, "Shannon, here's my roadmap for 2022. Could you do me a favor and look it over? Give me your best advice." Yeah. And she said, "Hi, Dad." I was hoping to catch you in person soon to chat about your roadmap, but there's always seemed to be these tiny, loud monsters around. <laughs> so grandbaby. Exactly. And one just snuck in here. Yeah, exactly. we were starting. Yeah. Um, so thanks for including me and know that 
all of my thoughts below are with the utmost love and respect. Now, that's like in the South, they say, bless your heart. Because no, what we comes next? <laughs> we we effectually call that the crap sandwich. White bread, <laughs> a little bit of brown stuff in the middle, and the, uh, the white yeah. bread again. Got it. That's exactly right. So yeah. then she's got four very specific practical things that from her vantage point, I would have, they're in my blind spot, right? Oh, so right. the power of having a roadmap for your second half is that as you share it with your friends, your personal board, your wife, your husband, your kids, they can have something concrete to give you feedback. So good, man. Oh my God. You know, you know, again, I came, I've come back to this word. We have the word generosity in the name of this podcast. And as I sit here and I look over the five goals, you listed family, Linda, serving with friends, deep, joyful relationships, frankly, uh, social entrepreneurs. I mean, four out of five of those are really about other people. I, I, I can see that you have, anybody listening to this can hear the, the heart you have for serving other people. You really give yourself away. But I also like the deep, joyful relationships there's something about that generosity yourself. You know, this thing isn't just about money. None of that stuff is really about, like you said, even about earning money, nor giving money necessarily specifically. Right. So how do, you, how do you relate those goals to the word generosity? Yeah. So, you know, one of my, my second metric, if you, if you were to ask the question, if your life turned out perfectly, how would you know? Yeah. Your answers to that become metrics. So my six metrics are, number one, I would have worshiped God every day. Number two, I would have become someone who gives liberally, not just my money, but my heart, my time, my full attention. Number three, I would have deep, rich, intimate relationships. Number four, I'd have made a leveraged impact as a thought leader. Number five, I've had stayed in great shape physically. And number six, I would spend my life surrounded by beauty. Wow. So the generosity is a metric. And so I'm measuring my life by how much I give, how much of my time. And so I give four days a week. Yeah. And one day a week is a Linda day. Yeah. And I've done that for 11 years now, Jeff. And when we first got to know each other, I was just starting in on yeah, that. I remember Linda days. And so I remember telling you that the very first time I said to her, hey, honey, you know, we're generous with everybody else. I'd love to be you know, generous with you and spend, what if I just take a day off every week and we spend it together? We'll call it a Linda day. There's a big pause. She said, a whole day. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> My wife's name is Dolly. I'm, th I'm, I'm thinking she's like, oh, that sounds uh, terrible. minutes? <laughs> <laughs> what are we you doing know, for the rest of the day? So she says a whole day. And I said, honey, now you hurt my one feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, look, try it. I'll be on my best behavior. And she said, no, but you're so intense. And yeah, anyway, yeah. so we've been at it 11 years. It's been wonderful. So I, I give my time away. I spend a little bit of time on our business, but even our business stuff, you know, the wealth we're creating is so that we can be generous as a family. So yeah. it infuses into your life because there was a person a few thousand years ago that said it's better to give than to get. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be true, right? So, okay. So the generous piece infuses into, in, in the family, if you're going to be, if you are going to be the servant leader in the family, it means you're going to be chief serving officer. So on that column in my roadmap, I sit down every year, usually in the fall, and I write down every person in my family, everyone. Nieces, nephews, brothers, sister-in-laws, Linda's sisters, 
And I asked myself three questions. Number one, what's their single biggest risk? Number two, what's their single biggest opportunity? And number three, what's the most meaningful thing I could do to be helpful? To them? And then out of that, I build this strategy, this column here about giving back to our family. So it comes out of the just taking a little bit of time to think about each of them. And, and the funny thing is they know that I do that. It's not like a surprise, right? I'm right. Not, uh, sneaking up on anybody. And so, and then let's take the column serving with friends. What I decided was I don't care much about organization and brands. You need a brand, you need a platform, but I don't care much about them. I care about friends. I, I love people and I love serving people with people I love. So I decided all I'm going to do the rest of my life is serve friends with friends. It's mm-hmm. like what you and I are doing together right now. Yep. And so under that column, serving friends with friends, here's what the desired result is. To comp- a compounding 100x return on life, savoring the journey and la- the lasting results in the lives of the halftime men and women we serve. So I right now, I only serve with other people. Everything I do, I do with somebody else that's going to eventually do it better than me and eventually take it over. And we make it a point of savoring the journey together. And it just doubles the joy. This is so good. I mean, I was writing down words like uh, strategist, coach. Do you mind sharing what your personal mission statement is? Yeah, it's to be a thought leader, enabling high capacity leaders to leverage their capabilities in partnership with God, advancing his agenda. Yeah. So that that's a filter, right? Your personal mission statement is a filter. So you can say no to 90% of the good things that come your way. So you can say yes to the few very great things. So the reason I'm doubling down on the Halftime Institute is because it's an area where I can be a thought leader. It only works with high capacity leaders who want to advance God's agenda. And then the reason I'm doing writing the book, The Social Entrepreneur, and doing ardentmentoring.org is because it matches A++ mentors with A++ social entrepreneurs that just need wisdom. They're 28 or 30. They got a great idea for this you know, micro enterprise thing where they're going to lend money to Christian schools in Peru. But you know, they don't have the wisdom that this other guy has that ran GE Lighting. Exactly. I just love it. I mean, it's so clear listening to you. I'm glad. I mean, it starts with thought leader. That, that's exactly how I think about you is, I mean, I don't know if I've ever, I ran out of room. I usually only need one piece of paper front and back. I'm running out of room, but that's, that's what thought leaders do. They give you concepts and ideas that you just want to run with. And so I think we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. And, you know, one of the things I think we, you know, I know one question we wanted to cover was, you know, things that, you know, questions people can ask to avoid squandering their later years. So we can, maybe you can address that if if you haven't already. But the main thing we try to leave is just some one super practical, you know, you're a business guy and coaches a lot of other business people. Uh, You're super generous about that. It's really your calling. And, you know, all of us 
involved in this podcast are just business people trying to do the same thing. Uh, and, and so we try to keep it kind of practical. You've given us, you've given us all kinds of practical things, but if, if there's something on your heart, that's sort of the one tip that tomorrow somebody could start doing a question they could ask themselves or, uh, or just some action step that they could take to just get on this journey of generosity for themselves. What, what, what might that be? Yeah, so so two things. Uh, one is you asked the question, you know, how do you avoid squandering yes. your second half? And you squander your second half by getting sucked in by the comfort that comes with our success, you know. And it just it just you piddle away your remaining years. And the most meaningful thing you can do to avoid that is to get clear on your own long-term metric. Once well, you get you clear, say yes to. Because yeah. the default will happen. That default right. will happen if you don't, you have to be able to say no to some things. And how do you know to say no? You have to know yeah. what to say yes to. Right? Exactly. Right. So I don't get distracted by a lot of like investment opportunities that come yeah. my way where yeah. I have to babysit stuff because right. what I'm trying, I know what my calling is. I know my long-term metric. That doesn't mean I'm not aware of really good investments and I pay a lot. I, you know, I've got people that are helping me with that. But you got to get clear on what you want long term and let it be the plumb line to help you say no to most things. The second thing, though, is if there was one piece of insight that I've been learning in in these 25 years, you know, I spent 23,000 hours now coaching um, CEO types. and, And it's this, that your kingdom impact compounds over time. No one ever taught me that. When you and I were in our 20s, Jeff, we learned about compounding return on investment. And we knew it at a conceptual level. Do you remember how excited you were when you looked across those graphs and you thought- We okay, still show them to young people. Start yeah. now with a lot less money. Yeah. You're going to have a lot bigger number than if you start with more later. Yeah. Yeah, but the years are fewer. So yeah. I remember being 26 years old. I had 300 grand after tax that I had made on this first deal. And I ran those numbers and I mean, literally, I could have done a backflip. I right. was so excited. Right. Well, now I'm 60 and I know about compounding return on investment at a very different level. I've experienced yeah. it. I know what it's like. I know how to go through cycles of investment. Now, here's the thing that no one taught me is your kingdom impact will compound the same way. Mm. And you may know that conceptually, but you need to lean into that. And I can think of things that I did 15, 20 years ago that are having a 100x return right now. I remember going to Singapore six or seven years ago, doing a halftime event. There was a guy there that um, was writing on his, on his whiteboard that his purpose statement was to bring sight to the blind. And I remember thinking with quite a degree of skepticism, seriously? Yeah. And I went back 2019, just before COVID, and had lunch with him. And he's incredibly wealthy, very talented leader. He has organized and funded 25,000 cataract surgeries for seniors in China. Wow. Four seniors that would never be able to see their grandkids are seeing with clarity today. Now, that's one guy. You see how my comp, you can, if you can gain a line of sight to how you could be the soil produced 100 fold. It will forever ruin you for just ordinary return on life. And, and so what is the thing that somebody can do tomorrow to start on that journey? Is to really think about 
what are the things I'm doing right now to invest in other people's lives that will have compounding return? There you go. And start making those investments. Don't wait till something happens, some liquidity event. Don't wait till some net worth threshold. Just just say, I'm going to start investing now because it's going to compound like you would not believe. Right. Yeah. So find the right investment vehicle, if you will, for our yeah. investment analogy right. and start early. Yeah. Start just now. get started. Just do something. Right. Yeah. Start with one kid. Start yeah. with one neighbor. You know, I mean, it just, you know, I, I got when I first went through halftime, I took a role as a, a pastor of evangelism. And I set a goal to see 100 people come to know the Lord. And after five years, there were 49 people on this list of people that God had brought across my path. I'd had the privilege of leading to know him. Recently, Linda went to a funeral of somebody and a lady came up to her and said, I'm so-and-so, and I don't know if you remember me, but my husband, Mark, was in a small group with your husband. And in the process, even though he was a very skeptical scientist, he came to know Jesus. I just wanted to tell you that our four boys have all come to know him. They're all dating Christian girls. They're in college. One's out of college. And then she had tears in her eyes. She said, I just want to thank you so much. That's a, four, that's a 400% return right, right there, right? So, you know, and I think about 100x return in channels in my life, okay? Think of it this way, Jeff. I was born with no cash. By the time I leave this planet, we'll have given several million dollars away. Uh, that that might fit that 100x category, right? Be the soil. That, um, I know there are 50 or 60 people that have come to know the Lord through me so far. I'm hoping that by the time I leave this planet, there's 100. That would be 100. And then I've coached thousands of people like you, and I'm hoping that some of them produce returns. So that might be 100x. And if you think about compounding return on life, all of a sudden, just making another million dollars is not as sexy it used to be because you can see how much impact you can. Love it. Well, that is just a perfect way to wrap it up. Get started and pick something with some leverage. And, and I think uh, everybody on the, on the, in their car listening to this, can, there's somebody they could start with tomorrow. Absolutely. Somebody to start that compounding yeah. happening. Well, Lloyd, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I could do this all day. You know, thank you. Just one more time. Thank you for for being with us on the uh, Generous Business Owner podcast today. You're so welcome, Jeff. It's a joy. And like I, I'd sum it up, get clear, get free and get going. Thank you, Lloyd. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.